namo tassa makhavato arahato samma samputthasa namo tassa makhavato arahato samma samputthasa namo tassa makhavato arahato samma samputthasa Uthang tamang sangkang kunutarang upacayang namasamim. I'm very happy to have this opportunity to meet with all of you again um, this evening. It's uh, almost exactly two years since I was here last time. And uh, I almost didn't make it today um, <laughs> because, um, yeah, I won't go into all that, but uh, <laughs> we finally, finally got here. And um, it's uh, exciting times, I think, for the Buddhist community in this part of the world. And um, tomorrow we'll be having a called a Papa offering and um, people, um, students of mine and people um, from all over uh, the place have been um, making donations uh, to support Pacific Hermitage. So people in Bangkok and in Korat, in Thailand, in Ubon, and in LA and in San Francisco um, and so news of your uh, project is being spread far and wide and uh, many people are very interested and inspired by what's happening here so I, I know um, that Buddhist communities in, in Western countries um, even with um, the internet and the um, enhanced um, communications um, that we are blessed with these days can still feel um, rather isolated um, and not really um, perhaps so much part of a larger Buddhist world. Um, so one of my intentions is coming here this time was to let you know that um, as far away as, as Thailand, there are many people who are um, following um, this project with interest and even enthusiasm. So this evening, um, my, it's my pleasure to be able to share some thoughts on the Dhamma with all of you. And in, in Thailand, I've seen, um, of course, huge changes in the 32, 33 years that I've been there. And at least in terms of um, the Buddhist dimension uh, to life in Thailand, I've seen many very encouraging things taking place, um, particularly in the last few years. There's a huge interest 
in meditation, um, particularly amongst the urban um, middle class, uh, which was not the case when I was first in Thailand. And one piece of anecdotal evidence that, that I could cite of general um, interest is that over the past few years, um, many FM radio stations have been set up um, throughout the country and in almost every district, every province, there are Buddhist monasteries um, running radio stations and uh, with like 24-hour Dhamma talks and chanting and um, sometimes uh, questions and answers. Um, fueled largely by a huge uh, production of um, C CDs, Dhamma talks um, being produced for free distribution and being able to uh, be used um, by these stations. And whereas a few years ago if you went out um, on, on arms round or walking through the countryside you'd hear the sound of um, pop music on these tinny little radios and the people carry around with them as they look after their water buffaloes or do their work in the fields. And these days you're much more likely to hear the sound of monks giving Dhamma talks or even chanting. Um, this is something I've experienced many times. So <clears throat> there's, um, there's a lot to, um, to feel um, optimistic about. One change um, that I've noticed in particular is when I was first teaching many, many years ago now, get, uh, mostly the people who would come would be um, elderly, um, and they would, a common question would be, how can we get our children to become interested in the Dhamma? Now, these days, I get more and more younger people coming saying, how can we get our parents <laughs> interested in the Dhamma? So um, I'm not sure whether that's a, a sign of progress or decline. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, there, uh, one of the um, one one common attitude which, which um, still prevails is that Dhamma practices for. Um, later years after you fulfilled all your responsibilities as a householder and you you've put your children through school and college and you have a little bit more free time and um, very commonly usually men rather than women will say you know I don't uh, I, I don't do bad things um, I lead a reasonably good kind of life I'm just not ready yet to practice the Dhamma. And so one of my replies to this kind of statement um, is that's not the choice that you have to make um, because the moment you wake up in the morning you are starting to practice, uh, meaning uh, you are creating kamma through body, speech, and mind, and you continue to do that until you fall asleep 
at night. And that, that is practice, the creation of kamma through body, speech, and mind is practice. So it's not a, um, it's not a choice between practicing or not practicing, postponing practice to some time in the future. The, the, the choice is what you are practicing, whether you're practicing dhamma or you're practicing atamma, which means all those things which are not dhamma. There isn't some uh, kind of middle ground or neutral space where you can just kind of um, uh, dwell in a kind of a neutral gear until um, you can move into um, some really serious practice sometime in the future. And the Buddha said that um, every time that we act, and, and action here in, in, in this sense includes volitional thought and speech as well as, as uh, physical action, is uh, meaningful. It has results and consequences. And that if the mind is not inclining towards what is wholesome, then it will incline to what is unwholesome. So, so the Buddha is really teaching us um, to take responsibility for our lives and for the quality of our actions. And one of the ways in which the Lord Buddha referred to his teaching um, was to categorize it. There are many different kinds of religious traditions um, prevalent at that time in India. We can say it was a golden age for, for religions. And they were categorized and, and one of the categories that the Buddha said applied to his teaching uh, was that it is a Viryavada teaching. So it's a teaching of virya. It's a teaching of effort. It's a teaching that effort is possible. Effort um, has results. And that we uh, fulfill ourselves as Buddhists and as human beings through action, through wise action. So in uh, I, w I would suggest that for that reason Buddhism is um, a universal religion. Um, why I say that is um, that I, I like to speak of religions as, as um, forming themselves into families and the group of religions, the monotheistic religions that grew up in the Middle East uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam are a family of religions um, and they are characterized essentially um, by faith. They are belief systems. And so in this culture uh, we tend to um, look at all religions as belief systems. If we do that we seriously misunderstand, misunderestimate the teaching of the Buddha. 
Now, the, any belief system um, is always going to have problems when it comes into contact with conflicting belief systems. For people um, who are adherents of any particular belief system, then they find themselves in a quandary. If you believe um, that your ultimate happiness um, is dependent most importantly or exclusively on what you believe, then what is the correct way to relate to people who don't believe or have different beliefs? And this is, um, of course, um, part of the um, background to the various religious wars and conflicts that we have seen over the past 2,000 years and to the general consensus um, that any religion, when it finds itself in the ascendancy um, and it has political and social power, will tend to oppress religions in the minority um, and therefore um, education systems for instance need to uh, be secular in order to be fair and to prevent that kind of conflict. Now my, my contention is that um, Buddhism is not a belief system. I think um, one very simple uh, test would be to uh, pick up a copy of the Majjhima Nikaya or any of the major uh, discourse collections of the Buddha um, and at random read a page and then compare it with a page from any of the holy scriptures in the faith traditions. Quite a different um, thing altogether. So the whereas the the the, faith, the belief systems, no matter how benign the teachings of each faith belief system may be, um, are, I would argue, inherently divisive. Whereas the Buddha's teaching um, says that your um, your welfare and your ultimate happiness um, does not depend. Um, uh, largely or exclusively on what you believe, it depends on what you do, on the quality of your actions, the quality of your speech, the way that you use your mind. And so um, there's no difficulty at all um, as Buddhists for us to acknowledge uh, the fact that a Christian um, after, after death in this lifetime could be reborn in heaven or a Muslim uh, or a Jew or a Zoroastrian or a shaman um, or an atheist um, their particular belief systems are not the main um, uh, energy driving rebirth it's what we do how we act so the, Buddha, uh, the Buddhist teaching um, is one of um, action. Now I have, um, I would like to share with you a somewhat um, perhaps an arrogant idea that I think that I can uh, bring all the religions of the world together. <laughs> and, and my reason for this assertion is that I think that um, we've started off or we've been working um, from the top downwards 
and it doesn't work. You know, when they have all these interfaith meetings and the middle idea is, well, we're all really doing the same things, we're all uh, really aspiring towards the same things, we have the same values, we just call them different words and really it's all the same and, you know, it's kind of um, friendly. Uh, it has certain social benefits, but uh, of course the, if I was to ask, well, do you actually know that? You know, do you know that uh, heaven and nibbana and paramatman and all these things are actually the same thing under different names, or do you just think that's a that's a kind of a um, a diplomatic and friendly way of talking about different traditions? So I would argue it's um, it doesn't work because everybody says says that, but in in uh, in their heart of hearts they say, but really my religion is the best. Um, so. My uh, my idea is instead of starting at the top, you start at the bottom. So what what's the bottom? And this is uh, to make this fundamental and seriously important distinction between believing something and knowing something. Um, it's surely not um, a difficult concept to grasp that it is possible for a human being to believe completely, utterly, absolutely in something which is completely false. Um, we've seen this again and again and again throughout history. From my own life, I, used to, I had an absolute unwavering faith in Santa Claus at one period in my life. Um, so the, the idea that the intensity and strength of your faith is a proof of what you believe in um, is obviously a fallacy. So in Buddhism we have this wonderful word Satchanuraka, which means caring for the truth. And you care for the truth by making a clear distinction between what you believe and what you actually know. So if we, let's, let's just assume this might, or, or uh, imagine perhaps that this might happen, that we, we had uh, all these wise people come together and one person says, um, I believe um, that Jesus died to save me from my sins, but I don't actually know that. It's my belief. And a Muslim says, I don't really know either, but I believe that Muhammad was the prophet of God. So everybody um, has to start off with this very simple, humble acknowledgement that they don't actually know anything about what they're talking about. Um, so instead of you know, we actually know that we're all talking about the same thing, we're all going the same place, which is, which is responsible for I don't know how many hundreds of hours of, of waffle, um, let's just start and say we don't actually know. So if you're a, if you're a, a Buddhist and say, oh, you're a Buddhist, you believe in reincarnation, don't you? You know, don't don't fall into that trap. You know, um, Buddhism's not uh, a, dog, uh, a religion of dogmas. You don't have to sign on for certain beliefs uh, when you become Buddhist, but you're taught to understand the nature of belief. So, um, if my answer would be. Uh, oh, you're a Buddhist, you're a Buddhist monk, you know, you, you must believe in rebirth. I say, well, I don't actually have any direct experience 
um, of rebirth. I don't have that knowledge of past lives personally. So I'm starting off in a position I don't know. But I believe in it. I have a strong belief in rebirth. And these are the reasons. Firstly, because of all the evidence in the suttas, in the discourses of the Buddha. Secondly, the, um, the past life memories of experienced meditators um, um, who I've spoken to personally. Thirdly, spontaneous memories of past lives from children throughout the world, many of them very well documented. And fourthly, uh, memories of past lives under hypnosis. Now I think that those those are four very strong supports for a belief in rebirth, but they're not a proof of it. So I think this is, um, you know, a way um, that we can relate to each other, which is a lot more real um, and ultimately constructive um, than the idealistic way that um, is being pursued mainly at the present. So can we accept that we don't actually know? So going back to a uh, point of uh, effort, I'd like to just point tell you a story. It's one of my um, favorite stories and concerns two frogs. And these two frogs live by a pond and, you know, it's a pretty monotonous life, a lot of croaking and a lot of sort of froggy activities and, and and then one day one of the frogs says let's go and look in the cow shed we've never been there but there's some very interesting sounds come out of there sometime and it kind of looks a cool place so I say yeah okay now the uh, the lady um, the farm um, had just gone into the cow shed to milk the cows it's got this big pitcher of milk and she just put it down when she heard her baby crying. So um, she was very concerned about her baby, rushed off um, and left the pitcher of milk there on her shelf. The frogs come in and say, what's... And they sort of see the, see the cows, a little bit intimidating, a um, little bit smelly, so we'll leave them. And they see this pitcher of milk and say, let, let, what's, what's that? So they, they jump up onto the top and it's sort of, kind of white and, 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 and watery and interesting. So they jump down and of course they can't get out again. And so what can they do? They're struggling and they, they start to swim. And one of them, uh, he's, he's the Ajahn and he's very, um, <laughs> you know, uh, he's, very, he's not panicked at all. Uh, but his student is really panicking at this point, and so the ad, um, um, he wasn't a. Ter I don't think he was a Theravada um, <laughs> frog um, because he taught his student a song, and we're not allowed to do that. But I, I'll reproduce it for documentary evidence. Anyway, he um, he had this song, and he said, "Look, just just sing this song," and, and he said, "Little," and he said. Um, never give up, never give up, however long the day. Never give up, never give up, until you find the way. So he starts swimming and swimming, and he says, oh, I can't do it anymore, I can't do it anymore. And he says, never give up, never give up, however long the day. Never give up, 
never give up till you find the way. But this frog is getting more and more. He's less and less inspired by this song. <laughs> and eventually there's a glug, glug, glug. And there's only one frog left now. But this frog, he just never gives up, never gives up. And he's swimming around and round and round and round and round. And suddenly, well not suddenly, after a long time actually, he only feels something under his, a little bit solid under his feet. Oh no, that's not the corpse of my dear friend and disciple. No, it wasn't. It was something else. What could that be? It was butter. <laughs> He'd swam and swam and swam and swam until he churned the milk into butter. And suddenly he had a new surge of energy. And he swam and swam and he sang this song. Never give up, never give up. Have a long the day. Never give up, never give up until you find the way. And, and then the butter increased and he was able to use its steps and escape. So it's the teaching of effort and virya. Um, I, um, before I came to the States, I was in Bhutan and uh, I, I told this story to a group of three or four hundred school children. And all the, school, all the schooling in Bhutan is done in English. And these children, even though they came from quite uh, poor backgrounds, they, their English was very good. And it was, it was so cool, you know, because I just, just once threw on this verse and they could all join in. So all I had to say was, never give up, and then there's three, four hundred children, never give up, never give up. And it was really sweet. And then at the end, they, um, uh, there was questions, and so people asked questions about the story. And then this one little girl uh, came up, and no, it was a boy actually, and one little boy came up and she said, what happened to the baby? <laughs> and at that moment I realized, you know, how stories develop because, you know, I, I couldn't say, well, she's not really important, you know. <laughs> so, so, you know, I had to make up some, I said, well, um, uh, well, the, 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 the lady, she walked back into the, the farmhouse and she picked up her baby and she said, even though I went away, I never forgot about you, even for a single second. And the baby didn't understand what she was saying because she was just a baby, but she saw the look in her mummy's eyes and felt the warmth of her mummy's arms, and she knew my mummy loves me very much. <laughs> and everyone said, ah. <laughs> so, that was the story. Now, um, so having told the story, I'll carry on. Um, and tell you a little bit my idea about practice and what practice is. So I feel that the teaching of Samawayama, which is the fifth element in the Eightfold Path, as I'm sure most of you will be aware, is the um, best, okay, most comprehensive framework for Dhamma practice. So getting away from the idea of practice is sitting uh, in a particular posture, walking, um, doing this, doing that. Saying practice is in any situation that we find ourselves, whether it's in a monastery uh, or in the marketplace, in a, in a Dhamma center or at home 
or in an office, our effort is to protect the mind from unwholesome dhammas which have not yet arisen. And because um, it's highly unlikely or impossible that you'll be able to do that um, in every case, then also at the appropriate times applying effort to reduce, to let go of, to eliminate unwholesome dhammas that have already arisen. The third um, kind of effort is bringing forth, um, bringing into the mind wholesome dhammas which have not yet arisen. And fourth, and, and most uh, and very importantly, is not becoming heedless and satisfied with wholesome dhammas that have already arisen, um, but seeking to develop them further. And um, after the Buddha's enlightenment, speaking of the two virtues which um, were most instrumental in his um, enlightenment experience, um, he cited two. First is unremitting effort. And secondly was um, discontent with the um, results, with the kusala dhammas, which he had already realized. You know, if you can imagine, Siddha Prince Siddhartha left the palace and studied with the two greatest meditation teachers around. His progress was miraculous. Both teachers said, you know, you know more than us now. One invited him to be a co-teacher or a co-abbot, and the other one um, said, you can just uh, run the whole show. Um, and the Prince Siddhartha must obviously um, have developed um, incredibly strong samadhi, and that kind of samadhi suppresses um, all the, almost all of the defilements. You're not experiencing that, that kind of agitation, ups and downs, uh, like good samadhi, firm, stable samadhi of that level. It feels subjectively um, like you're enlightened. That's why so many people overestimate their attainments. So, um, it, incredibly, given the fact that even the Ajahn, even the authority figure is saying, you've done it, you know, you've realized it. There's something in Prince Siddhartha that said, no, no, there's something more. And that was a quality that the Buddha um, recommended um, for all of us, and is saying that um, the, we should be content um, with a reasonable amount, an optimum amount of material sustenance. Um, and we should be constantly checking and looking and asking ourselves, what is the optimum amount in, in material realm? But in the spiritual realm, we should be discontent. It's meaning saying, no, this is not enough. We need to go further because if you're not going further, you're going to um, uh, decline. In in the monastic world, uh, we see uh, many uh, many monks, or at least a number of monks, 
who disrobe in their 40s and one of the reasons uh, other than sort of midlife crisis um, um, kind of reason is that um, they reach a certain level of samadhi of inner peace um, and assume that it's stable and um, take it for granted and then find themselves unable to cope with the distress um, that arises when for one reason or another through ill health or through a change in lifestyle um, it um, appears quite clearly to have been only um, an impermanent condition. So um, an analogy that I've come up with this is um, a glass of water with some germs in it. If you want to kill the germs you have to boil the water at 100 degrees. Now if you were to heat that water up to 95 degrees, 96, 97 degrees Celsius or I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, 200 and something Fahrenheit, um, the water would be extremely hot and the difference between that hot water and boiling water would be uh, quite, quite small but it would be a crucial difference because unless the water reached the boiling point then the germs wouldn't die and when the water cooled down for some reason or other you'd be no better off than you were before and um, similarly the stream entry is the point um, at which the water boils as it were to mix metaphors somewhat but I hope that you'll understand what I mean um, so there's these four, there's these four kinds of, of effort and the particular techniques that one is employing uh, to guard the mind um, against unwholesome dhammas, to eliminate unwholesome dhammas to have arisen, to bring up, to, to instill wholesome dhammas that are not yet arisen, and to care for, protect, and to uh, increase the power of wholesome. These will, will vary uh, greatly and there are some um, that are extremely important. Of course mindfulness um, being the main one but you need a whole medley um, of techniques and the skill to apply them appropriately. The, um, I was speaking with someone this morning and say um, a teacher in a um, school in uh, the Bay Area and she was saying how how difficult it is to teach restraint to teenagers in America. I said well not not just in America and not just teenagers but the <laughs> the the point being I saying that often uh, choice of vocabulary the word that you use um, is um, you know has can elicit um, a strong emotional reaction which prevents people from from hearing the um, the rationale or the value of doing so and I, I say for instance with sense restraint um, in Thailand I would teach of chil children to care for their eyes care for their ears you know apart from the physical care of, of eyes and ears how do, how do you care for sight how do you care for hearing um, so that it, it isn't a cause of of suffering for you and um, I also um, love to quote um, Chekhov 
and um, Chekhov, the Russian um, writer and, and playwright, once wrote um, a letter to a friend and he said, I'm sorry um, to have written such a very long letter. I didn't have enough time to write a short one. <laughs> and so if we look at restraint as editing, you know, um, so it's not like there's something you really want and you're, and, and you're just sort of not going to do it because you think it wouldn't be a good thing or um, one reason or another. But if you look at it, um, any um, great piece of prose writing or, um, or any art, it's what you leave out as much as what you put in, um, which creates its unique quality and value. And we're saying in life and in conduct, it's as much what you don't do as what you do do um, that gives your life integrity and value. Uh, and makes uh, can make your life a source of blessings to others uh, rather than the opposite. So um, these are four areas, and sense restraint is one of the um, the traditional um, formulations of this um, practice of um, taking care of the sense bases as a way of preventing uh, unwholesome dhammas from arising. Time doesn't really um, uh, permit me to go into uh, this in great detail this evening, but I, I would like to, to give you a further set of four um, as a pair with these four right efforts, um, as we call them. This is, um, I think the last time I came, I, I was uh, I explained somewhat my my idea and how I'm teaching and propagating the, the concepts of a uh, Buddhist education or Buddhist wisdom education and um, expressing it in in terms of four kinds of cultivation or development. Um, these are. Uh, in Pali, Kaya Pawana, Sila Pawana, Jitta Pawana, Banya Pawana. One of the reasons, uh, the, the, uh, one of my teachers and a um, great theorist of, we uh, call Buddhist education, um, uses the threefold training or education of Sila, Samadhi, and Banya as the underpinning for a so called Buddhist or Buddhist wisdom education. I um, decided to uh, use these four pawana because speaking with many parents who are not yet familiar with this concept, um, you talk about samadhi and people think um, immediately, just going to have my kid sitting with his eyes closed all day, he may be very peaceful, but he's not going to be able to survive in the real world, that kind of idea. So um, taking a, a second um, group of, of dhammas, um, from the sutta, um, which cover the same ground but are expressed slightly differently and I think more appropriately um, for an education system generally, but I think also um, uh, useful reflections for uh, Dhamma practitioners everywhere. So Gaya means a cultivation of your relationship to the physical world. So that would begin with your physical body, um, and uh, be concerned with effort 
to find um, a balance, an optimum um, quality for the, am the amount, the kind of food you eat, um, the amount of exercise you get, um, and the um, generally how you how you treat your physical body, how much rest you give your body, for instance. Um, and then, if you can imagine, like concentric circles from your, from your physical body, which is the aspect of the material universe you're most intimate with, the outside to your possessions, um, and what's the optimal, wise relationship to your uh, your your all the things that you call mine, whether it's your house, your car, your computer. Uh, what's your relationship to um, the internet? Facebook and all these kinds of things. Is it in that level? It's the optimum amount, meaning uh, to say it is conducive um, to development in Dhamma. It's not an obstacle to it. The outer circle would be your relationship to the environment. That's the first area. This, the second um, area, external area, is your relationship to the social world. Um, and finding a way of relating to people in your own family and in the community and society in which you live, um, in which um, you are acting and speaking in such ways that you are preventing the arising of unwholesome dhammas that have not yet arisen, um, reducing, eliminating unwholesome dhammas that have arisen, bringing forth good qualities that have not yet arisen, and caring for and developing further good qualities that have arisen. So these are the external, two, two external. We're dividing sila into one, your relationship to the material world, and second, your relationship to the social world, the social universe in which you live. Internally, the division of the jitta and banya. So here we're using, instead of samadhi, we're using jitta, the heart. In sila, samadhi, banya, the threefold training, that the samadhi there does not refer um, exclusively to samadhi instead of inner stability and clarity of mind. It's, it's the um, element of that training which is given um, a special place, the place of honor. Or if you're um, in a more worldly or mundane sphere, if you have a big band um, and <clears throat> um, a very charismatic singer, then uh, usually just refer to it by the name of the singer, and you know that includes the whole band. So samadhi includes all the band of kusala dhammas, there's too many to name. So using jitta is, uh, I think, a little bit um, clear-cut. So how are we to um, live our lives, how are we to put forth effort in a way to prevent the arising of, of hindrances and uh, defilements, to reduce, eliminate those that have already arisen, to give rise to wholesome dhammas, and to care for and develop those that have already arisen. So you can see that <clears throat> where is a certain amount of interpretation and, and um, uh, uh, explanation may be needed in terms of the first two in the jitta power now, that, well, that's very clear-cut. It's like you're doing that in a very direct and obvious way. Uh, with the development of uh, the fourth banya, then we're, we're talking mainly three levels of banya. First, 
thinking, basic thinking skills, uh, critical creative thinking, being able to use the mind with certain amount of discipline and logic. Second level is yoniso manisikara, the ability to reflect wisely on experience. And the highest level of wisdom would be vipassana, this is a clear, uh, non-discursive, direct experience of the three characteristics, the way things are. <clears throat> so putting uh, effort to prevent those um, mental qualities which undermine wisdom or prevent wisdom, faculty, from uh, being employed effectively, from arising, eliminating those obstacles to it that have already arisen, finding ways to support um, the arising and the employment of wisdom when and how it's needed, and um, the effort to um, further cultivate the wisdom faculty, particularly in the areas of yoni, so manisikara, and vipassana, or clear seeing. So for... Um, so I'm saying rather than looking in terms of, oh, I don't have so much time to sit these days, but I try to be a bit mindful in daily life and so on, then um, I, I'm suggesting this uh, looking at your practice in terms of these four efforts and, and looking in those four different focuses for those four efforts. And I think that will be the end of my talk this evening. <laughs> So thank you for your patience and um Yes you can if anyone would like to ask questions or make concise and succinct statements <laughs> um, or teach me something, I'm very... That's one one area of it. Uh, the point I, ma uh, I, I think I made probably in that talk that I make quite often is that there's you always have to be mindful of something. You can't just be mindful. Um, and and some people say I'm being mindful, but there's this kind of fuzziness about it. You you probably mean you're just trying to be in the present moment, um, but I don't think that's precise enough. Um, and it's not really um, sustainable, um, particularly when you're under pressure or time pressure or emotional pressure or when there's a lot going on. Um, so um, the uh, when we take the precepts, you say, for instance, panati pata, where atmani, sikha padang samatiyami, 
Sikapadang means um, a, a training. It's a, a rule. Um, a, it's not so a rule or a commandment. Um, it's a training. And the word samatiyami um, comes from uh, samadana, which is very closely related to the word upadana, which is the Pali word for clinging and attachment. So as an idea, if you, you have a, an ignorant attachment to something, that's called upadana. But if you take something up wisely, hold on to it wisely, then it's samadana. So we're taking up um, certain um, boundaries for, for action, certain standards um, of action as skillful means to train or educate our conduct. So the, these are not, as they say, rules, commandments, um, but they are a mindfulness practice. Precept, keeping precepts is a mindfulness practice. You are mindful of the precepts. So uh, we tend to act in, in very um, um, soberingly um, mindless ways. Our minds just fall into ruts of habit and um, act in very automatic kinds of ways. Um, sleepwalking. I, I used to, yeah, I used to like to read about hypnosis, and I was, you know, think, how is it that people can be hypnotized so easily? You know, you think, is that really possible? Um, and then I read some someone who's a hypnotist says that basically most people's normal mental state is just that far away from hypnosis. It's just sort of just tipping them over the edge. Um, so. The, the precepts um, help you to wake up. So if your um, my usual favorite example is mosquito biting you, and you know you've done that before. You you know it's not like you have a clear cut intention to be cruel and malicious, but it's just a habit. You know, and it's just assume you have the right to do that. Um, but if you've taken precepts and you've reflected on them. Um, and you're considering them as um, a, an important instrument by which you're training your conduct, then um, I hope that as perhaps the impulse to swat you, oh, what am I doing? So at that moment, that's a moment of mindfulness, isn't it? You've woken up from a habitual um, thoughtless action, and the moment you stop and you wake up, the wisdom faculty um, is able to function. What am I doing? Is this wholesome? Is this unwholesome? Is this in line with my my ideals, my aspirations? Is this the kind of um, conduct that I'd like to support and encourage in myself? All these kinds of thoughts can arise because you have stopped and woken up. And you wake, you're able to wake up, even in, as I say, when there's a lot going on, and you don't, uh, even if you're not particularly calm. But that recollection of the precept is enough just to cut that stream of thoughtlessness, and allow an evaluation of what am I actually doing right now. 
So this setting, uh, the sila in, in Buddhist tradition has to be voluntary. Um, if, if we feel it's imposed upon us from outside, then it won't be sila. It won't be sila in, in the threefold training or education. And <coughs> um, so uh, it, it's, it's rather subtle, and there's a wonderful discourse in which uh, the Buddha says, if you refrain from killing and stealing and sexual misconduct and lying and um, consuming intoxicants, and on the basis of that, you feel you're superior to someone who does not refrain from those things, then on that ground, your sila is sullied. It's your precepts are no longer pure um, because uh, you feel that they make you superior to someone else who doesn't keep precepts. So it's not just a matter of um, uh, just following a set rigid rule. I mean, it's, uh, it, these are tools to use, as I say, to, to educate your, your conduct. So um, that if you can be mindful of, of your precepts, then you can be confident that even if you, um, you, know, you get caught up in things a little bit, um, you're a little bit deluded sometimes, or you take your own side and, and you're not so honest with yourself sometimes, as long as you keep those five precepts, you're not going to create any really heavy kamma, which will be very difficult to, to deal with in future. So you're keeping basically um, on in the, the realm of the workable. Um, it's, it's when you start to compromise on the, on the five precepts that you're starting to get this feeling that in meditation you're going one step forward and daily life you're taking two steps backwards. So. I, I'm going to tell you a story, another story. What time do you have to go to bed? Is it really? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, okay, it's 9.39. Um, yeah, this is a story um, about um, Tibetan laymen. And uh, whereas Theravada was, you know, we, uh, we all try to go to pay respects to the, the Samwe Janiya Satan, the, the four um, holy places in India. Um, for Tibetans, then the place to go is Mount Kailash. And um, you, you know Mount Kailash and this, what's the name of the lake? Manasrovar, is it? So they do this like three steps, one bow thing all the way around um, this big lake, which is 4,000, 5,000 something more meters up. So the oxygen's very thin and it's very tough. And do this um, uh, circumnambulation. And, and so this one Tibetan man went, he got there with great difficulties and, um, and incredible faith, and he did this really tough um, circumnambulation around this holy lake. And then he went into the, the, the temple, and he, he bowed and he made this puja, um, and he, he, he prayed to the Buddha, and he said, Lord Buddha, in my lifetime, you know, I've, 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 I've led a not very good life at all. I've killed, I've stolen a lot, I've committed sexual misconduct, I've lied, I lied, awful lot of lies, 
and I've, I've been I've drunk a lot, got drunk a lot, and and with the power of this merit that I, has accrued to me through this circumnambulation of this holy lake, may I be cleansed of all my sins. So tears starting to fall down his Very touching moment. And then he says, um, Lord Buddha, when I get back to Lhasa, I'm probably going to kill again <laughs> and steal probably going to commit sexual misconduct, probably going to lie every day, and probably going to get drunk a lot. With the merit that's accrued <laughs> from this holy act of pilgrimage, may I be cleansed of all those sins as well. <laughs> so, not the right attitude. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the Buddha says, like, uh, can you cleanse? Uh, the, well, the Buddha praised... Uh, when, when we do something wrong, uh, then, and this is my analogy, not the Buddhist analogy, it's like you're driving a car in a foreign country that you've never been in before, and you don't have a very good map, and you haven't got one of those, what they call GPS, and, you, um, and you, let's say that you take a wrong turning, you know, how would you feel? Would you feel hopeless and worthless um, and terrible and... Um, berate yourself and accuse yourself, I would hope and think that you would say, oh, took the wrong turn here, take a U-turn and get back. You think, well, it's quite normal, you know, traveling, driving in somewhere that you don't know, uh, with a, uh, without a map or with a very sketchy map, and it's quite normal. I don't think that you'd hate yourself or hate your car or get angry with the road. Um, so... Similarly, friends, um, when we make a mistake in our own lives, you don't have to make a big drama out of it, just you turn and get back onto the path again. Um, and the Buddha, so now we've shifted from me to the Buddha again. So the Buddha, <laughs> uh, it's a big shift, I know, but um, what the Buddha said, um, first step is to acknowledge, recognize, um, be honest, yes, a mistake has been made. Um, secondly, not to conceal it, to reveal that fault to um, either to a spiritual friend or a teacher or whoever might be appropriate. And the third, unlike the Tibetan gentleman, is to make a firm determination not to do it again. And this, these are the three elements um, of repentance and purification that the, that the Buddha taught. And so this recognition, as long as there's defilements in the mind, then, you know, we're going to make mistakes and do stupid things. But the um, I, I, one reflection that I find very useful is, you know, if you look back on something you, you foolish, unskillful you did in the past I said I shouldn't have done that I should why did I do this and so this um, really I would suggest you're saying I should have been somebody else I shouldn't have been me I should have been somebody else you see my point it's absurd isn't it I mean how can you wish to be somebody other than you are or were you know you were who you were 
on that day at that time you had this amount of mindfulness and this amount of delusion you know <laughs> and and so if the amount of delusion and defilement in the mind is stronger than the the power of wisdom and understanding then how could you expect anything else but the amount of uh, wisdom and the amount of foolishness are not fixed qualities um, these are the results of effort and action and this is something that we can take responsibility for in future so take a wrong turning and get back on the road again sorry a long answer does anyone else have anything they'd like to talk about Yes, I mean, that, um, so I think we can <coughs> look at uh, thought um, as being of two uh, distinct kinds. You have thoughts that just pop up into your mind, often out of nowhere, and you think, well, where did that come from? Um, and that, that's what we call old kamma, or the results of old kamma. We think about that, we think like that, we have that kind of thought because we've thought that before. Um, um, and it's based on things that we've said and done and thought in the past so that's the consequence of it it's the karmic result of the past now if you simply uh, recognize that thought then you derive it of, all, uh, of its power um, if you react unskillfully to the thought you create newcomer you compound the pain. Uh, I think it's not difficult for anyone to to see that indulging in a thought and making a lot out of it um, is putting fuel on the on the flames on the fire. That's clear. But I think what is somewhat counterintuitive is that if some painful thought comes into mind and we try to drive it away as quickly, I don't want it, don't want that in my mind. How horrible! How could I think that? You know. Um, but that effort to drive something away or to get something out of your mind as quickly as possible, in fact, is every bit um, as um, inflammatory, uh, acts in exactly the same way psychologically as indulging in it. Um, it becomes more real. You're giving it a reality um, through that reaction. Um, so the, the wise way is simply to recognize it as a thought. That's a thought. Um, and it may be a, a, like a charged thought, but allowing that thought to be there for a moment and neither to grasp onto it or to push it away 
in most cases it will simply fall away by itself and so every time that such a thought arises in your mind and you're able to merely uh, acknowledge it without reacting to it either with pleasure or displeasure then you're weakening it and so that old kamma gradually wears out but it won't happen overnight it really depends on uh, to what extent you've you've cultivated that particular thought or attitude in the past and it may not just be in this lifetime it may be in in previous lifetimes so it's not something that will respond to an act of will saying I don't want this in my mind anymore I just want to have kind loving peaceful thoughts that it you know, that would be lovely but it doesn't really work like that uh. yes No, I, I, I don't see. I, I find that gives a like a, a framework uh, for practice, and so I mean the idea being that um, in in formal practice and informal practice, you're really doing the same thing. Um, the value of formal practice is that you're cutting down distractions to the absolute minimum, um, and you're focusing on that um, that right effort in a very clear um, and undisturbed way which is not uh, you know always so easy to do um, outside of that situation but you're developing certain abilities and certain strengths in the formal meditation practice which should carry carry on yeah. for instance you're developing a familiarity with mental states as mental states thoughts as thoughts and and the extent to which you're familiar and you have that perception and these are like wise perceptions we're developing now um, the, the extent to which these arise naturally spontaneously is, is uh, an indication of progress in practice so if somebody comes through the door um, who you're very familiar with a family member or a loved one or a fr dear friend you don't you don't have this who is that or maybe you do when you get a bit older but generally you think <laughs> <laughs> you know you, you you know who it is without having to think um, and so um, similarly through through putting that effort into form practice then as it, you know a certain amount of just the beginning just the first tremors of, of some negative emotion arising and there's a there's a recognition of it and becomes much more sensitive to imbalances and, and so on. But um, letting letting go. I mean, you know, what does that actually mean? I mean, it's it's a word that's bandied around. Um, the, in fact, um, when I was young monk, I remember one of the monk, somebody asked Ajahn Chah, you know, what 
keep on saying it's about letting go, but uh, what what do you do if you can't let go? And he said, endure, <laughs> patiently endure. Um, so that that's a part a part of it. And the I was saying, generally in practice, you know, what we let go is the results, uh, but we don't let go of the effort. So, so you're putting your, your, your best effort and you're finding uh, reflections and ways to be able to sustain that effort so that it becomes um, constant and uh, free of fluctuations. But you're letting go of, of, of the results in the sense that you know, you're not thinking that I should be you know, more peaceful than this given all the time that I've put into meditation or I shouldn't be... Um, making that same mistake again because um, and and why isn't it more like this or and you have this the, the sad meditator complex where where someone had some really great cool experience five years ago and every time they meditate they try to maybe this time I'll be able to experience that again um, yeah that's uh, SMC, Sad Meditator Complex. (laughs) (laughs) So, syndrome. Sad Meditator Syndrome. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, there's... um, Have I answered your question? thing with uh, like precepts is is um, so important and with the monastic precepts my my analogy for this is like a citadel um, with great treasure in it with concentric rings of fortifications and and the outer ring of fortifications are like all the minor rules of etiquette that uh, a bhikkhu keeps um, and the, the the idea here is that if you if you maintain that outer ring of fortifications, then you don't have to worry about the inner ring, and because the the, the outer ring is already keeping um, the the enemy, as it were, today. But if, so, if you take some of the minor rules that monks keep out of context, you just look at well, that's a bit bizarre or that's a bit silly or that's a bit kind of picky um, then yeah it's true but when they're seen you know within the context of the whole structure of the discipline um, then uh, really see the value now uh, we were talking before about precepts and and voluntary accepting boundaries and um, one one thing I suggest is you know if you have the 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 main five precepts is a kind of the skeleton, then you can develop certain uh, practices um, to enhance them or, or based upon them. So, um, you know, uh, an example, um, and, and, and looking at the, at the monk's practice as a, as a guide here, for instance, we, as bhikkhus, we're uh, we're not allowed to be alone with a woman or to speak more than 
um, six sentences or sort of basic um, alone with the woman, and this uh, is one of the rules that protects um, the the monk and his reputation. <clears throat> and I think that um, you know, as as lay Buddhists, then you know, these days, do you have a like a standard or like your own precept for how long? you would talk on the telephone to a member of the opposite sex who's not your spouse. Uh, do you have rules or, or your own standards for, say, email conversations or chatting over the computer with members of the opposite sex who are not your spouse? So you can take that basic principle of um, refraining from sexual misconduct and adultery and they think, well, apart from that basic precept, then what kinds of sila practices, uh, personal sila practices, could you, uh, could you adopt as a way to um, protect yourself against temptations that might lead you to break that precept or to uh, abandon or to reduce those temptations and those defilements that are already arising and, and, and um, increasing the likelihood or the danger of breaking that precept. You know, what are the practices that can bring up good qualities that enhance one's um, devotion to that uh, relationship with, with one's spouse and to um, develop it further? So the you know, having a, you can, like with a monk, you could have, I won't speak, for instance, I'm not saying, you know, this is, uh, you know, I won't speak with somebody who's not my spouse on the telephone privately for more than five minutes unless it's absolutely necessary. It's a, it's a business talk or something like that. But I won't just sort of chat and pass time. This just kind of suggestion of, of of a way of thinking, of establishing certain somewhat arbitrary standards as pegs for recollection, as objects of mindfulness um, to bring more awareness in daily life in a very practical and precise and workable ways. And you might have that kind of standard and every now and again um, you might feel for one reason or other, you go over it a little bit, but then it's always in your mind, it's a recollection, it's a standard for, for conduct. 